Thanks. I understand what that's like. You got things that you're, you want to get the word of God read. Oh yeah, there's a candle. But thank you, Paul. It is a little bit out of the ordinary. We don't do this all year round. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, this is a, a time of, um, for a lot of people, for, for me, for of a lot of hurry and a lot of uh, preoccupation. And Father, I know that um, I tend to dash around with maybe ill-prepared or not taking into account consequences, uh, maybe speak or act without thinking ahead or without thinking, without counting the cost because I get impatient. And I have this, these sudden things of uh, sudden events of enthusiasm. But Father, help me to stay stable with you. And this is what I pray for my brothers and sisters here also, that we remain stability in you that it's so easy to get full of things especially this time of year and so father we just want to get on our our way we just want to move on but father give us this time to pause this morning and christmas eve just to thank you that we offer up grateful hearts that we don't take offense easily, that we see the best in other and each other, that we seek out interactions that uh, will bless others and will surely bless us. Father, we trust you in what you're doing in our lives. We trust you for what you're doing in our church, and we thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, we ask a special blessing for people that are facing illnesses this Christmas. Many in our congregation are facing serious illness and loss. And so, Father, we ask for a spirit of comfort on these people. And that you give us words and prayers and conversations that will be an encouragement, that will be uplifting, that will draw our eyes to you and trust you even when days seem dark. So, Father, we are asking that uh, Christmas become interior this year in our lives, that it, they, that it um, really truly takes over our, our person, our consciousness, our families, our friends. As we remember this salvific act of incarnation, that this begins with you wanting to dwell with us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the third Sunday of Advent, and I do would like to encourage you to, to think about the... Did I say third Sunday? Yeah. Yeah. Fourth Sunday. <laughs> Sorry about that. Ugh. See, I was trying to lower the mic and not thinking. Fourth Sunday of Advent. Which is, uh, which is traditionally peace, the idea of peace. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit uh, this morning, obviously. Um, let's see if I can turn this on right. Uh, when I was at Northwestern College, uh, we, had a, we had to attend a conference every, every summer. And it was a great conference uh, in, in Atlanta. And I was always thrilled to go to Atlanta 
because my, one of my best friends from high school uh, lived there. He's been living there for 30 years after he got married. And so I got to go spend time with him. And then we had time of free time, of course, to get to know Atlanta and kind of look around, which is kind of hard in Atlanta if you've never been there. Every street begins with Peach, uh, Peach Tree Court, Peach Tree Circle, Peach Avenue. And so you get, it's just total confusing. This is the days before, really, that, that I knew how to use uh, Siri or any kind of, uh, of navigation system. But the, Atlanta has a couple of museums that are really worth seeing if you're ever there, really worth taking in. One of them is the Coca-Cola Muse Museum. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's really kind of a lot of fun. Not quite as cool as the Dr. Pepper Museum in Waco, but, um, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's a nice place. It's, it's okay. Uh, the, the other museum, though, the, on a more serious note, another museum is the King Center, Martin Luther King Center for Justice and Peace. And... Um, it's really a fascinating place to go to if, you've ever, if you're ever there. Uh, it's just really a, it's an eye-opening um, experience. When I was there, I don't, know if the, I don't know if the exhibit is still there, but uh, when I was there, they had these paintings up on the wall and these paintings of, of different scenarios of, of slaves. And in the frames, they also had dollar bills, currency in there. And uh, you kind of get a closer look and you start to understand why there is currency with these paintings, because the paintings were either taken from the bills, I believe, I can't remember if they were taken from the bills or vice versa, but they appear on the currency itself. And so it's Confederate currency. And you get a couple of pictures here of, uh, of slaves who are with, 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 bus, with uh, bundles of cotton everywhere, and they're happily working in the field, they're fully clothed, they got, uh, you know, just, they're well taken care of. And so this was like uh, uh, propaganda for the Confederacy. Uh, it, uh, when other countries dealt in currency from the Confederacy, they would see these engravings and, and, and would say, oh, well, look how well these slaves are taken care of, and look how, how happy and productive they are to, uh, to uh, serve in this way. And uh, the other message is that uh, enslaved people is money. And uh, if you read the Articles of Succession, for example, from Mississippi, they will say that uh, they are supporting of the institution of slavery because it basically supports commerce. And to abolish it would really be a blow to commerce. So enslaved people equals money. One of the things that separate, separated enslaved people from free people, I mean, some of the things were obvious. I mean, enslaved people, you know, did not have freedom of movement, did not have freedom of thought. White people did. They even had a constitution, a declaration of independence that said, you are free to think and do and move around however you want. Slave people did not. Another obvious example was one had black skin and one had white skin. But another way that they told the difference between enslaved people and free people was uh, free people had shoes. Slave people did not. And that is still true in parts of Latin America among the indigenous groups. That free people had shoes, slave people did not. In fact, there's an old uh, Negro spiritual that starts off like this called, I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my shoes, gonna walk all over God's heaven, 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 gonna walk all over God's heaven with my shoes. That's what signified, signified freedom for them. And it went on to other verses talking about the crown and talking about the robe. 
but the title of the song is All God's Children Got Shoes. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if, um, you know, if you many of you probably heard the gospel presented in a way similar to, I, I heard it. And uh, that is that, um, that all have sinned and no one is worthy to be in the presence of God. But Jesus came and paid the price, and if you pray and ask Jesus into your, law, your heart and, and ask Him to be your Lord and Savior, then you can spend eternity with he in heaven with God. Fine. But when I, we started church planning in some of the most impoverished areas of Puebla, uh, Puebla, Mexico, that version of the gospel just seemed thin. It was not quite good enough for me. That I, it, it caused a lot of turmoil inside. And so around the early 90s, mid-90s, I did a deep dive in just what is the gospel? What is the evangel? What is the good news? And I just spent all this time in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for a year. And then I dedicated one summer just to looking at this, and I was right. That it was thin. That there's a lot more to that than just what do you say in this prayer. In fact, the word gospel really doesn't appear that often in, those four, in the four gospels. Paul uses it a lot, but the four gospels, it really doesn't appear that much. What was the good news was the kingdom of God. That was the good news, that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of the king. That was what was the evangel. And it wasn't just saying how to get into the kingdom of God or how to become a citizen of the kingdom of God or your entrance into the kingdom of God. In the four gospels, it describes the king of the God, kingdom of God, the character of the kingdom of God. It describes what it's like. You see, what he, you see Jesus' teaching and how he lives his life, and you see, so this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what the kingdom smells like. This is what the kingdom feels like. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is what it is. And not only how to get in, but this is what it's supposed to be. This is what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom looks an awful lot like peace. All God's children have shoes in the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom looks like. If you look through the Old Testament... And you see the promises, and we're going to define it a little bit later, but if you look through the Old Testament uh, through the promises of what God is saying, He is promising peace. When everybody has enough, families are healed, shame is renounced, human dignity is bestowed, human dignity is restored on human beings, all God's children has shoes. And if you look at the Old Testament, these are the promises. That's one reason why I wanted, wanted Paul to read Isaiah 52. Because it talks about that, and it talks about people who bring this message of peace to the world. And I could have, he could have read Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. He could have read just about any chapter between 45 and 55. He could have also read from Jeremiah, Ezekiel. That is the promise. He could have read from Malachi, my covenant with him was designed to bring life and peace. I gave it statues to him to fill with awe, and he indeed revered me and stood in awe before me. He taught what was true. Sinful words were not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity, 
and he turned people away from sin. In Micah, he will assume his post and shepherd the people of the Lord's strength by the sovereign authority of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for at that time he will be honored even in the distant regions on the earth. He will give us peace. And then you get to the Christmas stories, which is our, our, our point this, in this season. And you see Zechariah's prophecy after Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist. And he, he go, breaks into this song. And he says, because of our God's tender mercy, the dawn will break upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then... Of course, the famous birth scene where the angel appears and tells them not to be afraid, and then the, the, the chorus breaks out around them, around the shepherds, and suddenly there was, a, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. That is the fulfillment. That is the promise, and that is the fulfillment. So before we define that, I think we maybe ought to look at what it, maybe look at, see what it looks like. And to do that, I think we need to go back to the beginning. And so we're going to go back to the beginning a little bit. Shalom uh, is the Hebrew word for peace. And if you look, do a word study on that, you will find that it, it is much more than just a ceasefire. It's much more than just an absence of war or an absence of conflict. It is much more than that. And the, the Greek version, the Greek word for that, arene, it's the same thing. What is this shalom? We have to go back to basically the beginning to see the creation of shalom in the garden. And most of us know the creation story. But God created, there's a couple of things I want to mention about. I'm not going to tell you the story again because most of us know this. But the couple of things I want to mention about this creation story is one, first of all, that up to our, it has to do with our point here, is that God created the sea monsters. Now, why would that be mentioned in Genesis, that God created sea monsters? Well, in the other creation stories, like from Babylonia and other places, and Babylon and other places, uh, they talked about the, the big fear of the sea monsters. That was the biggest fear in their civilization, is to go across the sea and face the sea monsters. And so I kind of wonder if the author, authors of Genesis is kind of poking fun at Babylon here and saying, you think the sea monsters are from some conflict with your gods? No. Our God created them. The Spirit of Him, the Spirit of God hovered over the deep and created the sea monsters. Why are you afraid? Because our God is, is sovereign over them. He created them. And the second thing I want to mention is that He created human beings with the image of God. And he are called to have dominion over creation. And the dominion, the word there, is, is not well, sometimes what we think it is. It's more the idea of stewardship. That we are to have, because we are the image of God, created in the image of God, we are to have dominion in the way God would have dominion. And another point there is, is the other creation stories. The only people with the image of God in those days were kings and queens. They were the ones who were deity. And here in Genesis, God is saying, all human beings have been created with the image of God. And they are called to have dominion in the way God would have dominion over the creation. My point here is that when we get to Genesis 1 and 2, we see shalom in its fullness. We see peace in its fullness. 
peace with the sea monsters, peace among the human beings, across gender lines, across nations, and then families. That's the way it was planned. There was peace. There was shalom in the creation. But we keep going, and we see the collapse of shalom, the tale of two trees, which we know that story too. We know the story of Adam and Eve were required not to touch the, the uh, or not to eat from the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes along and says, you know what, you can't trust God. He's holding out on you. And so he tempts them and says, if you want to know, really, you need to take on, eat the tree. Now the thing is, if Adam and Eve had truly loved God with all their heart, soul, and mind, they would have asked him about that. They would have gone to God and asked him about this tree, but they didn't. Eve distorts God's words. The serpent tempts them, and they say, yes, we want to be like God. We can't trust him. And so we have the collapse of Shalom. And my point here is this, this that when we think of sin, we think it's of, of our own imperfections. You know, we're imperfect, and, and so therefore that's sin. But the way I read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is that the sin is the breaking of a relationship. It is the breaking of our relationship with God. That's what sin is, a lack of love. And this first sin, this breaking of the relationship with God, causes a chain reaction, and it just spreads throughout and then affects our relationship with ourselves. It affects our relationship with, with the opposite sex. It affects our relationship with family. It affects our relationship with the nations and the governments and even creation. And so that falling out with God just has this catastrophic domino effect that breaks everything. And if you remember... If you remember in Matthew, in, in, uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling, uh, is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember this, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on evil and the good, rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward is it? And then at the end, he says, so then be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And how many times have we pulled that little verse out of context and we're going, oh, we all have to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we talk about that's our own imperfections. And boy, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes all the time. I'm sunk. But if you connect it to what Jesus is saying, he is saying the Father loves perfectly. You learn to love perfectly. It's about love. It's about peace. It's about shalom. Not just about our imperfections. My point is all this is that this, this peace, this, this collapse of shalom has to do with a broken relationship that begins with our broken relationship with God and then just spreads out from there. And we see the enemy of shalom, the monsters, is fear. The battleground for all this is the human heart. And I'm convinced that we have this instinct. We live, we live in a violent world. 
And I believe this instinct for violence is based on fear, that we react instinctively with fear with violence. And we are naturally afraid. And that's where the, that's the biggest enemy of shalom. I've said it before over and over again that the, the most common, the most repeated command in the scriptures is don't be afraid. And when Jesus appears or when the announcement of the, of the birth comes, they preface every announcement with fear not. To Joseph, to Mary, to Zechariah, it's always fear not. The, the shepherds, fear not. Because that will keep you from shalom. That will keep you from peace. The promise of shalom is the hope. This is the antidote for sin separation. When all is well, that is the hope that we have. And as Christians, we read this hope as the anticipation of Jesus, his birth and his coming back again. That is the promise of shalom. And the evidence is the birth itself. If you read over through the, 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 the Christmas stories again, you see this, this really confident longing of Mary and of the shepherds and of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph. You see this confident longing. But it's not just optimism. It's not saying, you know, look on the bright side. You know, it's, look, it's, it's good, all is good. Be optimistic. I'm convinced you can't, Tell somebody to be optimistic. It's, not, it's like telling somebody, uh, get some higher cheekbones or get some bluer eyes. It just doesn't work. But you see this longing, this confident longing in Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, Zachariah and Elizabeth. You see this confident longing. How did that happen? Because God showed himself in the form of a vulnerable baby. And what I think they got here was that this was God saying, it was like a symbol, of God, much more than a symbol, of course, but it was a symbol of saying, God is on the side of the vulnerable. God is on the side of the poor. God is on the side of the weak. When he comes with glory hidden in a baby, it's saying God's glory, God's power is on your side, on the side of the weak. That the glory of God came to earth connected with an umbilical cord. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's saying. And that's what gives us confidence. So Shalom was the first our shalom with God was the first domino to fall. So what exactly is it? First of all, we are created for shalom. The creator, the creator of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, the one who's existed for all time, that God created us. And he created to dwell with us and he created to love us. You know, Marriage, I, one of the things I liked about coming back into the pasture was doing weddings. I really love doing weddings. It's just one of the most joyous times uh, in the ministry for me. <clears throat> but marriage, marriage is awe-inspiring. 
it's wonderful, but it can also be terrifying. Because when there's a break, it's like almost breaking your body and breaking your soul. And you, you lose the kind of the sense of triumph. You lose the jokes. You lose the, the comfort, the stability when those things break up. And if that's the effect of two human beings breaking up, can you imagine what the effect of God and human beings breaking up? So we were born for that. We are born for that. It's in God's imagination for us to be with him, for us to live with him. And because of that, we actually have a thirst for it. We have a thirst for shalom. We are thirsty for it. Remember the story of the Samaritan woman, this enemy of the Jews, this hardened woman who is rejected by everyone, who's looking for love in all the wrong places, and Jesus talks with him, and she is thirsty. And yet she's drinking, like Isaiah said, basically disguised mud. She's drinking out of a cistern that is cracked and broken, seeping with mud. And he says, if you listen to me, I can give you fresh water. I can quench that thirst. We all have that. We all have this thirst that we are looking for something. We are looking for healing. We are looking for acceptance. We're looking for wholeness. And this hardened woman was created to love and to be loved. And that's what Jesus is offering. And he restores us. So getting back to that first gospel message that we talked about earlier, it does begin with reconciliation. Reconciliation is very important. And if you go back and read Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, you go back and read his prophecy, he even mentions that right before he talks about peace, he mentions forgiveness of sins. And there is reconciliation. And if you look at the scriptures of what God talks about when he talks about forgiveness of sins, he says, he says uh, I don't reckon sin to you. In other words, we owe a debt, but you look on our debit sheet and there's nothing over there. It's not there. God says that, that he covers sin. It's like throwing a blanket over it. You can't see it. As much as you want to try, you cannot see it. He says, God, God says, I put it behind my back. You can't see things that are behind your back. He says, uh, he says, it's removed as far as the east is from the west. No matter how much we want to go back and get it and get back into it or get under its guilt and shame, we can't because it's as far as the east is from the west. We cannot obtain it even as we wanted to. It is completely unreachable. He says he blots it out. It's like getting an ink spot on your shirt. Right? And it's like the, the, the water sizzles on a hot frying pan. It just, it just disappears. And then miracle of miracles, he says he forgets it. God in his omnipotence, omniscience, is able to forget it. And so that's where it starts. It starts there with reconciliation. But like the TV commercial, wait, there's more. That's where it starts. All God's children got shoes. It goes further than that. It goes further than forgiveness. It goes further than reconciliation. It is more than that. And I just want to mention two things. It's life with the eternal lover. It begins with being reconciled, but it's life 
with the eternal lover. Mexico has a couple of wedding, this seems to be a, re, a repeated metaphor here, but Mexico has, has a couple of traditions that I loved about weddings. And especially, I did a couple of them in the, in the, um, in the mountains, in the villages, in the, in the uh, indigenous areas. And one of them is, is the lasso. And that's pretty common in, in all Mexican weddings. It's the, the couples down there, and they're, they're usually the, grand, the godfather and the godmother put a lasso over them, meaning that they are tied together. They are brought together, and then they say a prayer over them. They are symbolically tied together now. The other one is called a, a callejoneada, which is after the wedding, they kind of all march through to the reception, and they have this big parade through the city, through the town. And it's so that they can all see, they, it's, like, it's also symbolic of their starting of this journey of life together. And so they walk through the town, they walk through the village, and people greet them, they congratulate them, they sing. Oftentimes there's musicians playing, and they're, it's just a very festive time. But it's their beginning of the journey of life together. And I just think that is such a great symbol for our life in shalom with God. That it has to do with wholeness, well-being, goodness, that we are tied together with Jesus. And I remember when I became, or at least a you know, aware as a young adult, as a young teenager, aware that I was lassoed with Jesus. That I was lassoed to him and he said, Tommy, you are loved. And I have pursued you since the beginning of time. And we're now tied together. We are lassoed together. And he says, come on, let's start our journey together. Let's do the Calle Juanada together. That's what it's like, the life of eternal love with him. It's this sort of behind-the-scenes kind of thing that we're always aware of, that we, if we make sure that we're just aware that Christ is there, that we are, we are part, it's just this glorious kind of glorious embrace that is always there. It means that we go to work, we talk with our friends, we laugh, we joke, we, we cry with them, we, we live life, but behind the scenes there's this constant awareness that we are tied together and we are walking in life together. That he is holding us in tenderness. It's not necessarily a feeling of ecstasy, though sometimes that happens, but it's just this feeling of being unshakable. George Fox, the famous Quaker, he said, he said it's established men. I'm sure he would have used gender language, gender neutral language if it was today, but he's talking about established people. That's what it's like. And yeah, we mess up. We mess up doing that. But he also goes on to say, don't waste time with self-recrimination. Don't waste time just beating yourself up about this when it does mess up. That's just a waste of time. Just a simple prayer. He says, just a simple prayer of God, this is what I am. This is why I need your help. This is why I need you to be with me. And then move on. Because this is what I am without you. That's why I need you. And then move on. And there is this wholeness about it. It's different than being a head full of theology. It's different than dogma. It is an intimacy. It is, it is different than just 
intellectually assenting to something. It's, it's almost the secret of the Nazarene sort of thing that you live your life with this eternal lover. You take off on the Calle Honeada. The second thing is we imitate the eternal lover. We are called to be witnesses. A witness is simply a person who reveals the truth, tells the truth. That's what we are. A witness is not the same thing as a believer. You can be a believer, but maybe you're not a witness. But one of the requirements for citizens of the kingdom is to be a witness, is to show people shalom, that the broken relationship with God is no more, that we are with people, and that relationship with God that we have, that shalom that we have, we owe it to everyone else. And if we break that shalom with other people, with other people with God's image, it affects our relationship with God and vice versa. Those two things are connected. One of the, um, <clears throat> one of the um, authors I like reading is Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, she writes some amazing things from a, a, a black woman's perspective. And she tells this story about when she went to go see the Pope in Washington, D.C., and she said everybody was there, just thousands of people were there, crowded around to get a glimpse of the Pope. And uh, he said, she said a lot of people in suits and ties were there. And then people kept moving in front of each other, and, and you couldn't see. And she said it gave me a whole new appreciation for Zacchaeus. Uh, because everybody was trying to see the Pope, you know, look at the, look at the Pope. But then the Pope got up to speak, and the sound was terrible. And added on to that, he spoke with an accent, as we all know. This is Pope Francis. And so he said, we couldn't understand him. We couldn't hear him. Just only those people at the very front could hear and understand. And everybody else couldn't. And she said, everybody kind of lost interest. And they started talking with each other and moving around and just kind of ignoring everything. And she got to wonder, she says, is this how the out people outside the church view us? That we have our our meetings and our times where we come and hear the word of God read and we pray and we sing together and people outside the church are going, well, that's fine for them. You know. But they need to take us into consideration. Why don't they look at us? Because I'm thirsty too. I need something too. And not just crowding around. Jesus has that wonderful uh, parable about the leaven and the bread. We're just one little, little tiny speck of leaven, little tiny speck of life can be put into flour and just be made dozens of loaves of bread. And I am convinced that's really what God is calling us to do. Just this little speck of life in our world and we can make dozens of loaves of bread with life. That when I decide to hold my tongue and not say what I'm really thinking, or when I decide not to send that email that I really wanted to send to somebody, or when I talk about them behind their back, just these little acts of shalom, of well-being, of goodness, of peace, where 
All God's children have shoes. And what that can do with the, round, uh, with, with the people around us, the people who are on the periphery that are wondering, what's going on in there? That's what we do. That's what it is. That we refuse to take these signs as Christians, the normal signs of power. We choose weakness. We choose vulnerability. We choose broken hearts. We refuse to be the oppressors. We refuse to be the, the, the uh, dominators. But we take God's power and vulnerability and weakness and be willing to have a broken heart. That's God's power. That's God's glory. That's God's shalom. This general sense of well-being and goodness where all God's children have shoes. Several years ago, <clears throat> um, Walter Brueggemann wrote a book called Prophetic Imagination. And when he talks about the prophetic imagination, I think it's, where we go there? When he, when he talks about prophetic imagination, he's not talking about prophets who imagine something and have this, create this imaginary world in the way that George Lucas created the imaginary galaxy in a, in a time far, far away. That's not the same idea. It's they imagine what the world could be like, what, what it could be. That's God's imagination. That's what they were promising. That's what they were looking at in the Old Testament. What was their imagination? Well, everybody has an imagination. We have an imagination of what we would like our country to be like. Sometimes it may be similar, and sometimes it may be very different. Every politician, every monarch, king, queen, dictator, warrior, they all have this imagination of what the world should be like. I mean, we're, we're seeing it today. Putin has this imagination that, uh, that he wants to raise the Russian Empire again, and he's going to go down in history as the one who did it. And he begins by taking over a country that's independent, but he thinks it's his. He has this imagination. Kind of reminds me of, <clears throat> some, of you, some of you might remember uh, Pinochet in, in Chile, who uh, came on as, as the savior of the, of the country and then became in, instituting this reign of terror, basically, of torture. And the Roman Catholic Church was, this, was the strongest church there in, in Chile, st still is. They were kind of asleep at the wheel. They just kind of ignored it. Didn't think, think anything about it. But there was this group of Christians that had another imagination and you know how it started? Taking communion. They took communion and they imagined what communion meant and what that would mean for Chile. They had this imagination of what it would be like, this picture of shalom in their country through nonviolent resistance. And it all started with communion. Congregations gathering around the table, adopting the imagination of communion. We're going to do that today, this morning. We're going to take communion. And by taking communion, I'm going to say we, when we take the bread and the cup, we are 
adopting the imagination of the Lord's Supper, of what that means, of the symbol of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. That this sacrifice that will create shalom in our community, among us, in our families, in our town, in our society. So we're going to invite you to, to um, come up and take communion. We're not going to ask you to come, I'm sorry. We're going we're to pass it out this Sunday. And um, what we'll do is we'll pass out the bread first. And I would like for you to hold it so that we will take it together. And uh, we'll pray and take it together, and then we'll pass out the cup. So I'm going to ask a few guys to come up and give me a hand here. Now when the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table, and the apostles joined him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, this is the new covenant of my blood. Let's take the cup together. I want to ask you to stand for a benediction, and I'm going to read the first couple of uh, lines from Zechariah's praise that we mentioned earlier. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because he has come to help and redeem his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. And he spoke through the mouth of the holy prophets long ago that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all those who hate us. He has done this to show his mercy and to remember his holy covenant. Amen. You may go in peace.